0: I hope you're still turned to Jeremiah 35 in your Bible. We'll refer to it back as uh, we continue this morning. We come today to an unusual story recorded for us by Jeremiah. And speaking of unusual, my mind wanders back to the early 70s, probably 1973 or so. That would put my younger brother Mike, about five or six years old, that'd be about right, We used to have a morning assembly before Sunday school started. It was initial time of singing some songs, having maybe a devotional, really uh, translated. It's waiting for the stragglers to arrive to Sunday school before we start. Today we call it coffee and donuts, but then it was morning assembly. Well, anyway, all the children were gathered together, and the leader opens up with this question, children. Do any, any of you know who Jeremiah was? It's definitely or deafening quiet. My brother pops up his hand and says, Hey, I know who Jeremiah was. He was a bullfrog. <laughs> <laughs> he referred, of course, to the wildly popular song of the day by Three Dog Night. This good-looking bunch of guys. And the song that had these lyrics as it opened, it played incessantly on the radio Jeremiah was a bullfrog he was a good friend of mine I never understood a single word he said but I helped him drink his wine and boy did he have some mighty fine wine okay So the song is obviously not about Jeremiah the prophet of God but I wonder as I think about these lyrics if Jeremiah wondered sometimes if he wasn't a bullfrog or something else because he spoke and he spoke and he spoke for the Lord God and they didn't seem to understand a word he said. Maybe his bullfrog ease was getting in the way of his message Well, hey, the song says he had some mighty fine wine. We'll get to that in just a minute. Recall that the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order. In fact, many times the order of the book has been puzzling for Christian commentators and Christian pastors. Uh, But make no mistake, the book of Jeremiah as handed down And preserved by the hand of God is in God-ordained order. And one only has to dig a little bit to uh, find some bearings. The first thing to note is that Jeremiah 34 and 35 go together. That may seem odd as 35 deals with Zedekiah. 35 deals with Jehoiakim. They're reversed. I think I got something wrong on my... Uh, Yeah, I did. The events in chapter 35 actually take place before those in 34. It's backwards. It's backwards. But they go together topically as the scrolls were given to the exiles. As they gathered up the scrolls of Jeremiah and they sent them to the exiles, they put them together, uh, these two events together to make their message clear to Jewish readers. These Two chapters go together topically. Now, we read chapter 35. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of chapter 34. Okay, we're in the time of Zedekiah. He's the last king. And uh, Zedekiah and all the cosmopolitan with it kind of society people in Jerusalem decided that they're under attack by Babylon, it's the final siege of Babylon, and so Jeremiah's been crying out about all this all this time, so they decide they're just going to make this great big show of obedience to the Lord. So they cut an animal in half, and they have this elaborate uh, covenant ceremony where they walk between the pieces, and they Free their Hebrew slaves. Now, that goes back to the law of Moses, where Moses told them if you take a fellow Hebrew as your slave, you may keep them as a slave for seven years only. And at the end of that seven years, you give that Hebrew his freedom or you give him the opportunity to stay. Now, the Israelites had never, never obeyed this command. But Zedekiah and all the with it citizens, they decide they're going to obey it. And believe it or not, God was pleased. He even reduced some of the uh, judgment that he was going to pour out on Zedekiah. God was pleased with him. But the siege didn't end. It continued. And so... Just a a few short little days later, they reneged on their promise of freeing the slaves. They took them back and continued their life uh, the way it was before. When God didn't do what he wanted them to do, they just went back. God was not pleased. Keep this in mind. God is never, never impressed with an act of obedience just done in a way to manipulate him into doing what you want. That's dangerous ground. Think about it with me. How many times you hear this? God, if you'll get me out of XYZ, I'll serve you all the rest of my days. But how many times as soon as we're freed from XYZ, we just go back to the way we were before. God is not pleased with such things. That's chapter 34. A shining example of faithlessness. These people were faithless. Now, the timing of our passage is during the reign of Jehoiakim before all of this takes place. Judah is under the first siege by the Babylonian army. This siege will eventually end with Jehoiakim being captured, taken off to Babylon with what would be the first wave of uh, exiles from Judah. Um, They're going to take the best and brightest of Judah Judah, and haul them off to Babylon. Um, It would include people like Daniel. And his friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. People like that, they hauled off to Babylon during this first siege. Nebuchadnezzar then leaves behind kind of the riffraff, the lower people. Uh, less wealthy, less influential. And they would form a vassal state with Zedekiah in charge. The setting of our story will be taking place in one of the side rooms of the temple where Jeremiah and his uh, guests can be on full display for the temple and the governing leadership. We would say today that Jeremiah and these people, they did all this out in front of God and everybody. They did it out in the open so that everyone could see what was going on. That was, of course, on purpose. Jeremiah did this on purpose. It's going to be a live, concrete display of the teaching that God is doing through Jeremiah. Remember, last week it was a field that was our concrete example. Uh, Before that, a wooden yoke. uh, An earthen vessel was before that. A fine linen loincloth. God used all kinds and all manner of illustrations to uh, get across His message to the people Do not think for a moment that the Old Testament God is an angry, zapping God who just took out His wrath on His people and was mad all the time. Yahweh, the Lord God, utilized all manner of teaching methods and practical examples to get His teaching across to His people. He was and is a God of compassion and mercy. He doesn't want anyone to perish but he's also of God of justice. He will not abide a stubborn, unteachable, unrepentant people or persons. Okay, all of that serves as an introduction to Jeremiah 35. The big idea of the passage is very simple. God expects his people to be faithful. He expects his people to be faithful. So let's dig in a little bit. Let's look at Jeremiah and the Rechabites. Who are the Rechabites? Well, very simply, they're the family descendants of Rechab through Jonadab. They're an interesting, interesting bunch of people. They have this really unusual place in history going back as far as the northern kingdom of Israel and the wicked rule of Ahab and Jezebel. God sent word through Elijah the prophet that he would destroy all the house of Ahab and Jezebel. There would be nobody left. And so he did that in 2 Kings 10:15 by the hand of Jehu who was the new king of Israel. So Jehu goes through and purges the land of Ahab and Jezebel. And who does he utilize to help him? None other than Jonadab, son of Rechab. Now that happened some 250 years before the event we're talking about today. Not only do these people have an unusual place in history, they're just unusual people. They are a sect within the worship of Yahweh and they have some very, very different ways about it. We might think of them like the gypsies of Western Europe. They roam around place to place. You can always identify a a gypsy. Or maybe look at these people. Who are they? They're Amish, obviously. They're Amish. You can tell by their horse and buggy. You can tell by their way of dress. You can tell by their hats. These people are obviously Amish. They have unusual ways within the Christian faith. Well, the Rechabites were unusual people who had unusual customs within the faith of Yahweh, within the worship of Yahweh. We can see an Amish person and, and recognize them a mile away. The Judeans could see a Rechabite and notice them a mile away. Now, their customs, things were like, you know, they had to stay nomadic. They couldn't settle down. They couldn't build a house. They couldn't plant crops. They were not to drink wine or alcohol. None of those rules were rules or laws given by Moses or in the worship of Yahweh. But apparently, the family patriarchs decided that those very things were the things that led the people of Israel to sin and to idolatry and into laziness. And so they said, we're not going to build houses. We're not going to settle in them. We're not going to drink wine. We're not going to build venues. We're not going to plant. We're just going to be itinerant people who take care of our sheep and stay to ourselves. And in that way, we will protect ourselves from the sin that's running rampant in Israel. All right, so pick up in 35.1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord. The sad part is in 2021, and when we read this story, we miss the humor and the social implications of this passage. To try and help us figure this out and try and imagine it better, let's imagine that Jeremiah is throwing a cocktail hour in this room in the temple. And he's got this kind of people there. It's a modern equivalent to what we're talking about. These people are refined, they're educated, they're with it, they're together together. They're they're the social who's who, right? They're good-looking people. They're used to the niceties of the temple. They're used to all the customs of the temple. But Jeremiah goes and brings these people in. (laughs) In all their hillbilly glory, they come to the temple with Jeremiah. Now, look, this is holy humor. You are supposed to laugh, you're supposed to see the absurdity of the situation. Like when the scrolls were sent to the exiles in Babylon, like maybe Abednego, he he, he got scroll and he goes, Shadrach, get over here. Look at this in scroll 35. Look. Jeremiah took the Rechabites to the temple. Oh my goodness, can you imagine what that was like? Can you just see the priests? their jaws were dragging on the floor? Can you imagine? Oh, what I would have given to be a fly on the wall. They saw the absurdity in it. They saw the humor in it. It's it's a, a teaching method to see the humor in it. It's holy humor. These people walked in, and I mean like gasps were heard. There's this awkward silence. Conversation stops. The silence is deafening. The stairs are piercing. These people are on display. The Rechabites are on display. They shuffle around the table and they sit down and everybody's staring and looking at them. It had to be one of the most uncomfortable situations they had ever faced in their life. And then what does Jeremiah do? Verse 5, then I set before the Rechabites pitchers of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink up, guys, drink up. What a horrible, horrible predicament the Rechabites found themselves in. Not only are they embarrassed, not only are they on display, but now their host ask them to do something that's against their principles. In the ancient Near East, this was some major social pressure. Whatever your host set before you to eat or to drink, you were to partake of that. You were socially expected to eat or drink it. Not to do so was to give great insult to the host. Our African mission teams face this exact thing. One of the major ways socially the African people show their acceptance of our missionaries is to feed their guests. So they grab a chicken, they hack that thing up, and they serve it with all the African trimmings. And like it or not, you got to eat, or at least make a show of eating. That plate right there, that is a rib and a lung that was handed on a plate to one of our African missionaries. And she had to pretend to kind of... Eat around on it. Because if you don't, then you're insulting your host. It's a rejection of them as a person. It's a major faux pas. The Rechabites were in this situation between a rock and a hard place. What in the world could they do? But look at their response, verse 6. But they answered, We'll drink no wine. For Jonadab, son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. Keep on reading. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all the days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, our father, in all that he commanded us to do. Then look, go on. They explain further why they're even there. Verse 11. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come on, we've got to go to Jerusalem for fear of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So that's why we're even in Jerusalem anyway. So, Jeremiah, buddy, hate to be rude here, and I don't want to be an insult to you, but I don't care what anybody thinks or anyone says about us, but we're not going to drink the wine. We're not going to break with our principles. What a moment. These uneducated, unrefined, wandering nomad misfits dare to reject the modern sensibilities and modern customs. Everyone is aghast. But listen, because God spoke. Verse 12. Then the word of God came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? In other words, pay attention, you stubborn bunch of people. These Rechabites follow a 250-year-old man-made commandment from their ancestors. It's not even a command that I gave, but they have faithfully obeyed it for years. And you... I told you through Moses in Deuteronomy, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. But did you listen to your forefathers as the Rechabites have? No. No. I gave you Moses, I gave you Joshua, I gave you my law, I gave you prophet after prophet after prophet to refresh your memory on that which I commanded you to do all the days of your lives. And would you listen to me, not an ancestor, but the Lord God Almighty, the God of hosts? No, you would not listen. You never have. And when you go into exile... I want you to remember the faithfulness of the Rechabites to this man-made commands and how you did not listen to the word of God and the commands that I gave you. These Rechabites, through Jeremiah's test of them, showed themselves to be a shining example of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Remember, Chapters 34 and 35 go together. Zedekiah and his group of social elites, they were the epitome, the shining example of faithlessness. The misfit, rough, Rechabites were the epitome, the shining example of faithfulness. Now, put our modern pictures back up there. These refined people, these people who knew the niceties, their Faithless people. These bunch of yahoos over here, they're faithful people. The contrast could not be more obvious. It's a, it's a teaching method. The commendations could not be more shocking to the people. The lesser lesson could not be made more clear. The lowly Rechabites being the recipients of God's approval is not unlike the Samaritan and the tax collector playing... Praying in the temple, remember the Pharisee stood before God and he thanked God that he wasn't like the sinners like this tax collector. I'm better than that. I am a child of, or a uh, son of Abraham. I'm this and I'm, that, and I'm that and I thank you. I'm not like this. And the tax collector lay on his face and he beat his breast and he said, Oh, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every good and educated Jew knew that honor, power, prestige, those things were markers of God's approval. Duh. But they were wrong. That lie was as old as the book of Job, the oldest book in the Old Testament. They were wrong in the the days of Job. They were wrong in the last days of Judah. They were wrong in Jesus' earthly ministry. We can be wrong today too if we listen to the culture around us and especially to the prosperity gospel preachers. God is not impressed with the appearances of people and their status and their power and their money. If you and I want his commendation, it will come from faithfulness to him and not from our looks. It will not come from our prestige. It will not come from our power. It will not come from our money, our fame, our intelligence, our degrees, our jobs. God is not impressed with those things. So how can we as Christians in 2021 be faithful to God? God doesn't expect us to turn into Rechabites, but he expects us to be faithful. How can we do that? There are countless ways that we could track with this, but let me make a few suggestions. I'm going to make four suggestions for you. I think if we can get these four things right, we'll be well on our way to being people whose markers are faithfulness. Faithfulness. First, we have to cultivate a humble heart. We have to have a humble heart. This comes from many, many places, but I think the Pharisee and the tax collector praying that we talked about a while ago is the best example. Remember the Pharisee, he was proud. The tax collector, he was humble. He wouldn't even look up. Look at what Jesus said in verse 14 about it. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the one who wouldn't even look up at God, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People, we have got to remember our neediness before the Lord Almighty. We have got to remind ourselves daily how far our sin removes us from God. How many times have we heard from this pulpit that no matter how bad we think we are as a sinner, we're infinitely worse? We're infinitely worse. We have got to see ourselves in our relation to almighty, holy, holy, holy God, high and lifted up, and us as his creature, low, low, low. And the divide is great, and the only one who can bridge the divide is the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, what we tend to do is we bring God down to something that we can manage And he becomes our friend and we lift ourselves up to be his friend. And the closer we get to his level and the closer we think we are to him, the worse off we are. Our humility suffers. We have got to see our neediness before God. We've got to reestablish that gap in our lives. Uh, Look at 1 Peter 5, 6. Look what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He, He may exalt you. We need to let God do any promotion of us in His time, in His time, in His way. I was talking to my Sunday school class in the ancient Near East when people would go before the king. They went face down, face down. Forehead on the floor. And when the king finally was going to give them an audience, he would walk over and he would lift their face. They didn't get up, but their face was lifted. That's the idea. We stay down and we wait for God to lift our face. We stay humble before him. We stay humble. Let God do the promotion. All right, we've got to to be humble. Next, two, we have to be obedient. We have to be obedient. Remember the haunting words of Jesus in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? The commands of Scripture are not difficult, They're not difficult to know. They're not difficult to remember. But they have to occupy such a place in our hearts and our minds and our actions that leads us to obey them. We've got to follow Christ every day, we've got to pursue Him. We will still fail. But faithful, obedient followers of Christ Jesus are persistent in their walk and persistent in their following got to obey we've got to obey third we have to walk in the spirit we have to walk in the spirit This comes from Galatians 5.16, Romans 8, John 15. These passages are all interconnected and they're all related to this idea of walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, I say to you, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. And your your choices in this life are always going to be... uh, Balanced against one another, you're always going to have this conflict. There's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit. Romans 8 he has this long discourse, uh, familiar discourse. You know, it starts, uh, there's therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of spirit or the law of death. And then he goes into this long deal about setting your mind not on the flesh, which leads to death, but upon the spirit, which leads to life. Set your mind upon the spirit, not upon the flesh. And both of these passages, the Galatians passage and Romans 8, go back to that great John 15 passage. I love that. John 15 is where uh, Jesus is speaking at the last little bit to his disciples. And he says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You abide in me and you get your nourishment from me. And you stay real close to me and you abide with me. And I'll abide with you. And apart from me, zero. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. Go back this afternoon. Look at these passages more fully. See how they're related to one another. But basically it comes down to a setting of your mind upon the things of God. But let's stretch that idea further. So that we can see the motivation behind it. See, it's better described as a treasuring pursuit of Jesus. A treasuring pursuit of Jesus that propels your entire life... And seeks to know Jesus and loves Jesus as your highest goal. Remember that great Philippian letter where Paul says that all the things he used to be before he met Christ were just rubbish to him. I laid all that junk aside. Pick up with me in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I was all this great stuff. But whatever that was, I just put that all behind me. I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all these things, and I count them as rubbish. Rubbish. They're nothing. They're nothing. In order that I may gain Christ. I get Christ. I get rid of this stuff, but I get Christ. And and I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I don't have to keep it and earn my righteousness before God. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The very righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him. That I may know him. That's his highest goal. That I may know Christ Jesus. A treasuring pursuit of Christ Jesus. we got to be immersed in the living, active Word of God. we got to pray, 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 and then pray some more. we got to pray. we got to beg God to set our affections on the things of the Spirit, to have Christ as our highest goal. It is something that is done by the Spirit in our lives. It does not come naturally. Pray, 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 pray. Make Christ your highest pursuit. Oh God, make it so in my life. Be involved with God's people. Serve the church. Get busy doing things for the Lord. Finally, fourth, got to suffer well. we got to suffer well. Because see, if Christ becomes that important to us and we walk in the Spirit and we're obedient to, the God, to God, we'll be increasingly apt to suffer. We'll be like the Rechabites. There's going to be some times we'll stand alone for God. No one else is going to stand with us and we'll have to stand alone. The world will not like you. The world will not like me. But hey, The world and the crowd that follows it and their worldview is virtually 100% of the time wrong. They're wrong. We have to suffer well as a testimony to our belief that our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is worth far, far more than any earthly approval that we might gain by going along with the crowd. He's worth it. He's worth it. What he did for us at the cross, he is worth it. He's worth it. Look at 1 Peter 5. Pick up in verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, now i got to put this in. This is the same guy we talked about last week who said, you know, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord and a day is like a thousand years. After a little while, that little while may seem like a long while. It may be a long while, but in our lives and in the breadth of our life, it's a moment after a little while. Some may suffer for a long while, earthly-wise, but eternal-wise after a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's amazing. Let him be the one to restore. Let him be the one to confirm. Let him be the one to strengthen. Let him be the one to establish. He will do it. He will do it. Look at Romans eight eighteen with me. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, and Paul went through some sufferings, man. They're not worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember something with me. To see the beauty of a diamond, you have to see it against a black backdrop. To see the beauty of a Christian, to see, it, to see the shininess of a Christian, often it has to be in a dark, dark place reflecting the glory of the Lord. we got to suffer well. we got to suffer well. Now, I had finished the sermon, put it kind of aside, and I ran upon Isaiah 29, 19. And so I want you beside the word humble up there in our first little point, I want you to write that address down. Isaiah 29, 19. Isaiah 29, 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The meek. Because of humility, there will be joy in the Lord. Uh, Beside obedient, I want you to write in the little address, James 1.1. James 1.1. One of my most Favorite verses in the Bible. Strange verse that it would be a favorite. But it is this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And that, that word greetings is actually joy to you. Joy to you. If you remember at all, our teaching in James that we did, you know, a year or so ago. James beat us up. Remember, he beat us up. He, he starts this book, and then he just starts hitting us. I mean, I thought we were going to be bloody and bruised by the time we got through. Because James is all about, don't you overtalk your faith from your walk. Those two things have to match. They have to match. you got to be obedient in the things that you're saying you believe. Do you believe it or do, don't you believe it? But your walk and your obedience better match the faith talking that you're doing. And James, as he's starting to talk and as he's starting to just start mm, hitting us and beating us up, says to you, joy, joy, joy to you. There is joy Tied to obedience, uh, walk in the Spirit. Write this down. John fifteen eleven. John fifteen eleven. At the end of. Jesus uh, talking about the vine and the branches and abide in me and you and I'll abide in you and apart from me you can do nothing. He says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Your joy. By suffering. Write James 1 2. James 1 2. Count it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, count it all joy. One more on that. 1 Peter 4 12. 1 Peter 4 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you're enduring, but rejoice in so much as you share Christ's suffering. Do you see the connector? Do you see it? Humility, obedience, walking in the Spirit, suffering. They're joy. They produce joy in our life. Joy. Is your joy suffering this morning? Then probably one of these four areas is a little out of whack. Maybe... You're not suffering well, you're just complaining. Maybe you're not giving God thanks and, and praise for the trial that you're going through. Maybe you're not walking in the Spirit. Your mind is set on the things of the flesh. Your joy will suffer. Your joy will suffer. See, when we have this joy that's tied to these things, we have a treasuring pursuit of Christ Jesus. He is our joy. He is our joy. The Rechabites were a plain group of rough-looking hillbillies, but they got God's condemn- a commendation. I want to be—I want to be condemned. They, they got His commendation for being faithful, and God was faithful to them in return. Remember that last deal. There will always be a, a son of Rechab before me. That happened. Nehemiah three fourteen. One of the sons of Jonadab through Rechah was there building the wall. He got to come back from the exile. They're always there before me. The question for us to answer is, will I be faithful to God today in the midst of an unfaithful people? Will I be faithful? We'll receive his commendation one day too. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray.